Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The book of Hebrews is a demonstration, I think, of how to read the Bible, but also how to view history and the human circumstance. And so it reads the Old Testament figuratively. That is, not simply as history, certainly it acknowledges that history, but as applied and personal history. And in this history, the theme, like that that we pursued last week, is one that we have hope. But this hope puts us in a certain tension. We are caught between now and not yet. The danger is that we will focus on either the now or the not yet. And we will miss both are true. We need both. The not yet is the tendency to de-emphasize the reality of this world and to imagine reality as somewhere else. This misses the incarnation of Christ. It misses the prayer, your kingdom come, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm afraid that evangelical Christianity is focused on the not yet. The now, without the not yet, puts all the focus on this world and misses the transcendent. But the two divided, they look very similar. That is, they both make a very similar mistake. The now may be atheistic. You know, just this world, this materialistic world. It may be nihilistic, just seeing that there is darkness. But for all practical purposes, the not yet is also that it too can be nihilistic. Both miss God breaking into the world. We need both the now and the not yet. We need eternity breaking into time. Not all time, not just time, and not all eternity, but the two intersecting in Christ. And so with that in mind, let's read Hebrews 4, 6 to 12, in which there is a Sabbath rest available. And the picture is we're entering it. And the writer throughout Hebrews is picturing the church like Israel. And he's saying that we should not fail to enter in. You know, Israel is in the wilderness, entering into the promised land. And so this tension of entering in and being in the wilderness pertains to the word of God that is the word of God is the last thing he mentions here so let's read together therefore since it remains for some to enter it and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience he again fixes a certain day today saying through David after so long a time just as had been said before Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. 
Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so it remains for us to enter in. Looking back, the writer says, some people didn't enter in. They got stuck in the wilderness. Don't get stuck in the wilderness. But right now, today, and of course what he means by today is the Sabbath day. He's saying every day is the Sabbath day. We're to enter in now. We're in the process. And God himself is part of this rest. That is, it's referring back to Genesis. God rested on the seventh day. That's not the unimportant day. That's the most important day of the seven days. The power of God's word then, the last verse here, is the means of entering in. And the writer is comparing our circumstance, the circumstance of the church, to Israel in exile. And we are entering the promised land of rest. And rest pertains to our orientation, our reception of the word. It pertains to our subjective position, if you will, in this word. And these verses, I think, are a case in point of the Bible itself. That is, that's the whole Bible in a sense. But it's also about Christ as word, about our reorientation in his word. And what is being described is the weight and significance of the word of God in human experience of the world. This now and not yet set up in Genesis. The depiction in Genesis that Adam and Eve are themselves expelled from the garden. They're in exile. They're subject to mortality suffering, sin. But then Christ is pictured as the second Adam. There's restoration. It's this tension of the two that defines all of the historical narratives of the Bible. This is the Bible. But it's also human experience, right? The weight of temporal experiences are signified then in these stories in the Bible and we all repeat the movement of Adam and Eve. We all repeat the movement of Israel in exile and return. Jesus, the Son from heaven, descends into corruption, into the place of captivity, into Babylon, into exile, into the grave, and says, come out. Come out of Babylon, come out of captivity, come out of the storms of life, come out of the fallen world, come out of sin, and rise into forgiveness, sinlessness, immortality, glory. The writer here says, come into rest. And so we're like Israel in the wilderness. We're like the Jews in Babylon. We're in captivity to sin. We're brought by Adam's fall from paradise into a kind of exile. There is a captivity in which the devil ensnares the church. Captivity can be rendered, this is the way John depicts it, as the world. 
And by that, he doesn't mean God's good creation. He means the human distortion of that creation. Jerusalem can be rendered as Christ's salvation. And these things are read as a figure of human experience. By figure, don't think I'm saying unreal. No, I'm saying real. That we read it figuratively as part of our own experience. And that's the way it becomes real for us. It's not to decrease its reality. It's to say this is true of all of us. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, speaking figuratively, this applies to you. This is the truth of our subjective experience. This is the movement of the Bible, of history. But it's your movement, my movement. Overarching, there's always the figures of Adam and Christ. Each are exiled in their own way. Yet with Christ carrying through Adam's restoration, through his own subjection, captivity's grasp in sin and death. It is this movement that the Christian is caught within. We're between places, the now and not yet. We're neither wholly free nor yet wholly imprisoned, nor still wholly imprisoned. We're entering the promised land, but we're not entered completely. There is the notion of history and time and our story as a progression. We're not captured in time. Time and history are taking us someplace. Freedom, the Jerusalem above, the promised rest. Spiritually, we've touched it. It's within our reach, but we haven't obtained it fully. That's the good news, right? Now, we can get this wrong in several ways. We can imagine the place we are arriving is too far out of reach. And strangely, this was the critique I mentioned of Friedrich Nietzsche. His pronouncement, God is dead, he means it both theologically and philosophically, he calls Christianity Platonism for the masses. Plato pictured reality up in heaven somewhere, and this earth as unreal. It's all not yet without the now. And like Plato, he thought Christianity was all about leaving this world for a completely different reality. He said Christianity then is nihilism because it empties this world of meaning just like nihilism. His pronouncement of the death of God in a sense is prophetic. He, he's making this in the 19th century and of course the demise of the God of the philosophers and the God of Christianity is going to come about in Europe. The church is empty out. We have the rise of fascism. We have the rise of socialism. We have the most disastrous century in the history of the world. There is a denial of the world, a denial of mortality, a denial of death. So the death of God for Nietzsche, it's not simply a metaphor. He means this death simultaneously points to the role of Platonism and Platonic Christianity in its denial of suffering, in its denial of the reality of suffering. Actually, the death of God was a phrase first used by Martin Luther. And what Martin Luther meant by this was challenging what is called scholasticism. Scholasticism is the fusion of Greek Platonic thought with Christianity. 
And Luther said, that is the theology of glory. And he meant that as bad. The theologians of glory, he said, refused the cross of Christ. Luther claimed God in Christ dying on a cross places God with us in the world, with us in death. But maybe what Luther didn't see is that this also means God is redeeming the world from within. The worldly part of this can also receive too much emphasis. Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, I'm sorry to be quoting all these people, but I'm giving you a picture of what has happened. That he is going to emphasize the now over the not yet. And he's going to picture God is actually confined to history, to the now, and is working only in history. It's from Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, Hegel and Nietzsche. These are the two people we get from Hegel, Marxism, Socialism, Communism. From Nietzsche we get Fascism. From Nietzsche we're going to see the rise of Adolf Hitler. We're going to see the rise of Mussolini. That is, this is all preceding the events of the 20th century. What they're both saying is we've got either too much now or too much not yet. And what all these thinkers have rediscovered, I think, is what the Bible calls exile. We are in prison. We're in the wilderness. We're in Babylon. This is at the center of the teaching of Jesus. And he also places his disciples within this turmoil, this exile. He's not saying, oh, you're going to escape. He's saying, no, you're going to suffer. But he also offers healing, restoration, comfort. But it's not the comfort of Plato, not yet, nor is it the comfort of Babylon, oh, it's all right now. He was saying to all of them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake he is the one who will save it. Luke 9.23. Actually, the whole chapter of Luke 9 is a depiction of this trial that the disciples can expect. Same chapter. What is a man profited if he gains the whole world? What is he profited if he's the perfect capitalist? If he's the perfect Marxist? The perfect socialist? I'm mad. Jesus didn't say that. But I think we can add that. He forfeits himself. If it's all now, you're going to miss the not yet. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Luke 17.32 warns. It's the same tension. Also an allegory like we have in Hebrews uses the picture he says remember Lot's wife whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it and whoever loses his life will preserve it we're exiting one city the city of Sodom and we're headed to Jerusalem if you look back you miss Jerusalem Jesus says in John these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace when do you have peace in the world you have tribulation. He's acknowledging that. But you can have peace. Take courage. 
I have overcome the world. We're in process. There's not an abandonment of the world, nor is there a commitment completely to the world. There is an overcoming of the world. One more verse, John 15, 19 to 20. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. What Friedrich Nietzsche calls Socratism, you know, Socrates is actually the character that Plato creates, is the refusal to deal with human reality, death and finitude. And he calls then for a return to mythology. The Superman, actually the Superman movies, the Superman comics, Uberman, it's out of Friedrich Nietzsche. His will to power, his myth of eternal recurrence. He's saying we need to go back before Plato to the pre-Socratic. He recognizes that there is success. He talks about culture and art and literature and that that then controls the passion, tragedy, emotion. And so his picture is the overman, is the uberman, the superman, is someone who can move beyond good and evil and its notion of an objective standard. Now we'll have to have a little bit of violence. And by the way, do you know who Adolf Hitler's favorite philosopher was? Friedrich Nietzsche. Hitler loved Nietzsche. That is, when he does what he's doing in Nazi Germany. It's under the guidance. I think a misinterpretation, but nonetheless under the guise of a kind of Nietzschean philosophy. Another disciple of Hegel who gives rise to the communist revolutions. We are in exile among those who would gain the world in order to obtain salvation. Jesus warned of this calamity. He says exile is real. It's real for Adam, for Abraham, for Paul, for John. It is real for Christ. We see in Christ's death, in his torture, in his exile, his being crucified outside of the city, one side of history. That's real. That's one side of history. History looks like Jesus. But we have to understand the other side of history. He's raised. He's defeated the world. He's conquered death. Platonic Christianity gives rise to atheism. That's what I'm saying. Where did Nietzsche come from? Where did Hegel come from? Where did Marx come from? Christianity gone bad. Nietzschean fascism. Marxist materialism of the 20th century arises from a Platonic Christianity that looks very much like evangelical Christianity in this country. We are headed down the fascist, Marxist, I don't know which. It looks more fascist at this point, but that's where we're headed. Plato pictures passion as a black horse. He says, well, reason, philosophy, the charioteer, he can gain control of the horse. By the way, this is the very image. Sigmund Freud picks up Platonic imagery and talks about the ego and the superego. He says, well, through reason, 
you know, maybe with a little help from your therapist, you can gain control of the black horse of the passions. Now, unfortunately, Freudian psychoanalysis, I think he was very confident. He wanted to be scientific. He wanted to be the Darwin of the mind. I think Freud is a kind of type of the sickness of the problem that we have. He becomes more and more pessimistic. He's forced to leave Vienna. All of his sisters, I think all of them were arrested by the fascists and would die in the death camps in Nazi Germany. He escapes to England. He loses one of his favorite daughters. He sees most of his family seized by Hitler. You always see Freud with the cigar. Well, he gets mouth cancer and he's in great pain. The point is that his optimism kind of follows the arc of the optimism of the West, that he begins to turn dark and he realizes we can't control the black horse. We can't gain control of the id. Conquering death, denying the platonic subject. You know, actually that was the goal of both Marx and Freud. And so we have the revolution, the Marxist revolution, the fascist revolution, the psychoanalytic revolution. And they're all aimed at the same thing. I think filling in the failures of a platonic Christianity. Nietzsche located the heart of this nihilism in what he perceived as the apocalyptic approach in Western religion. The idea of a future ideal world to come. And so for Nietzsche, apocalyptic Christianity, it was Platonic, and he did not know of any other kind of Christianity. His father, by the way, was a Lutheran pastor. This was what he was raised on. What we're describing right here with its inaugurated this world eschatology. The kingdom come to the world, a rest that is immediately available. We are entering into God's rest, his kingdom now. That's true apocalyptic Christianity. God breaking into the world. God's rest now, his kingdom come to earth, is being established. This is the recognition of exile, of the deceived law of sin and death. It's facing that reality. It's not turning away from that. But there is also recognition of God breaking into the world so as to give us his own person in Christ as the subject of knowledge. Apocalyptic theology is anti-Platonic. Part of this apocalyptic understanding is the recognition that death denied, exile denied, that's sin. That's definitive of sin. And this is the power that Christ has come to defeat. He goes into Jerusalem. He goes to the cross. He takes the suffering and he defeats it. The point of this revelation is the realization of freedom from slavery to fear of death. Freedom from slavery to the principalities and powers. God has invaded the world not to abandon it, but to reclaim it. In other words, Nietzsche is the recognition of the pervasive nihilism inherent in Platonic thought, I believe modern thought, Platonic Christian obscuring of death, his recognition of the need for an apocalypse. He says, well, we need to invent a new religion 
And of course, I think we wouldn't need to have invented a new religion if we understand what Christ is doing. The original New Testament notion of apocalyptic salvation, I think, is one that is being embraced in light of this understanding. Christ as word, Christ as reality, founds the history of exile and restoration, both. This is the movement of history. This is the movement of who he is. The relation of time and history has him as its priority, not his relation to time and history. We do not look to history to find Christ, but we look to Christ to find history in its divinely constructed form. It's the Christ form. We do not look to humanity to understand Christ's humanity, but we understand what it means to be human in him. We do not understand his word on the basis of philosophy or psychology, but we understand these through him. In the words of Christ, we have divine revelation. If he is divine, then his meaning explains the fact that the freedom brought by Christ is the one that takes place within the experience of exile. That is, we can be in exile. We can be in tribulation, but we can have peace. In the midst of the exile, there is restoration. The return has been enacted. Becoming, you know, that's what history is. It's going somewhere. It's a process. It's an unveiling of God. Time as becoming history. It's not only exile, but it is a way of speaking about God's creation continuing, especially the human life, for the purpose of exposing divine love in humanity, for humanity. There is rest in the midst of unrest. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.